Good morning again. Welcome. Happy New Year again. Uh, we will get to Hebrews. There are some things, I think, by way of it being a new year that we wanted to make sure you were aware of, um, a new initiative that we wanted to take together corporately on Sunday to be praying for other churches that we are in uh, fellowship or partnership with in spreading the gospel and on mission together. So we want to pray for another church specifically in a moment. And um, just let you know of another opportunity for prayer coming later today. Um, but first thing is, if you didn't know, um, if you're newer to us or just ha aren't you know, aware of how long we've been around, two days ago, January, 16, uh, January 6th, Sunday, January 6th of 2013, um, marks our 10-year anniversary uh, two days ago. And um, it's, it, there's not a lot of things in my life that I've been a part of, other groups or institutions that I've been there from its start to where we are currently. So it's a, it's a surreal experience for me. It's amazing how fast that time has gone. And um, as we've been reflecting, even remembering um, who is, is still with us today, there are about six, core six or seven core families from our church still a part of Terra Saratoga. We only started with 10 to 12 families. So that's pretty amazing. Ten years later, um, the majority of that core is still with us and worshiping. And my, how far we've come and how much we've grown and changed numerically, but also in terms of what God has taught us and along the way. And so we want to pause to celebrate that together. Celebration is not something that I do well. I tend to be in the moment or looking ahead and not taking time to remember and, and celebrate what God has done behind. And so um, it's as much for me as all of us to take that time to pause next Saturday at 5 p.m. from 5 to 8 downstairs. Uh, we'll just be celebrating through some good food together. I hear from what Amber says, it'll be a good Italian spread homemade, um, and uh, we'll spend some time sharing stories together of the work that God's done in our midst and through us and in our communities uh, over the last 10 years. So if you've um, not known about that or seen the communication about it, please just sign up to let us know if you plan to be there, and we hope that uh, most of you can and will. Um, the day after, just to mention it, uh, uh, both for because it's kind of fun and exciting, but also for a, a pragmatic reason, that Sunday... Um, Terra Nova and Troy will be joining us in worship here. There's some logistical issues to the, using their space to gather in. And so we were their first call. Hey, we'd love to join you. Um, and we said, we would love to try and make that work. Um, and so uh, next Sunday, they'll be joining us, which is appropriate, just given that Terra Saratoga launched out of Terra Nova and Troy, and we're still kind of in the midst of celebrating our 10-year anniversary uh, in that mode. And um, so pragmatically speaking, just be sure to give yourself a little extra time uh, next week. We know that parking can be a challenge, especially if you get here closer to nine. So you want to give yourself an extra 10 to 15 minutes. Um, beat all the Troy folks. Make them to be the ones that come in late. <clears throat> but it'll be great to have them with us. Um, I'd mentioned that one of the areas that we've felt like we want to grow in is as a church uh, of prayer, as, as a church meaning community of believers who are about prayer. And we do that in a myriad of different ways. Um, we do that corporately, of course. Matt has already led us in, in many ways in um, prayer corporately. But we've not always practiced corporately praying for the world around us and for the other churches outside of our walls. And we want to start doing that. We wouldn't be where we are today, honestly, without the brotherhood and sisterhood of fellow believers from other churches locally here in Saratoga and in Saratoga County, uh, in New York State, the Northeast, and globally even. We have partnerships at every one of those levels with specific churches. And we want to pause uh, on most Sundays at the front end of a message just to pray for them, 
as they're gathering to celebrate, as they're gathering to worship, to proclaim God's word, and to prepare their hearts and minds to leave, to go and be on mission for Jesus. And today I want to just share with you guys a little bit of an update about, I say update, you may not even know of a church called Restoration Buffalo, an Acts 29 church out in Buffalo, New York, that has been a part of the Acts 29 network for years, ever since I came to Terra Nova in Troy 15 years ago. And um, even just two months ago, in the beginning of November, I met with the New York group of Acts 29 churches. Acts 29 is a church planting uh, network that seeks to be on mission together to plant churches, but also there's a fellowship and a brotherhood there. And I saw Dan Trippi uh, two months ago at that gathering where we had some fellowship and just started to cast some vision together for how we can better plant churches. So it's, it's Dan's church, or the church that he, he's the lead pastor of, um, Restoration Buffalo, I want to pray for this morning. I got a text from him to the New York group of churches, Acts 29 churches, on Christmas Day, uh, that at 10.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, their sprinkler system in their church just broke and went off. And um, I looked back even this morning, I'm like, was it really cold? Yeah, it was really cold. I remember how cold it was coming in the lobby downstairs for Christmas Eve. So the pipes burst. It was cold in Buffalo. Um, the problem was they'd already been, always also been getting a bunch of snow, if you remember. They couldn't get in because of the snow to the church until 9.30 a.m. the next day, at which point the three floors of their facility were flooded, and there was three feet of standing water on the basement floor. He said to me that it was a total loss, or that that was their um, anticipation. And so I, said, I reached out to him this past week, and I said, how can we be praying for you, Dan? How are things going? And he said there are three things. Number one, for favor with the insurance company. Um, they had to begin remediation work immediately to make sure that mold couldn't start to grow, but they had to do so before they knew what kind of coverage they were going to get from, for insurance. So they still don't know that. So we can pray for favor there. Um, he said pray for uh, finding a contractor quickly to do the rebuild that they're going to be needing to do, because it's just complicated. The longer you're displaced as a community of believers, the more impact in ways that are hard to measure that has on your continuity and your growth and your familyness. And so he said, pray for us to find a contractor quickly, and then just pray for emotional and spiritual strength. Um, they had, you know, as all of us can relate to, they had just come, come out of and started regain, regaining momentum post-COVID. They had just begun to start some, building some momentum uh, for church planting again in their, in their locale out there in Buffalo. And so this feels like a setback. Um, and as Christians, we, we are allowed to both say how we feel and also proclaim what's true in the same moment. So it feels like a setback to them. It feels discouraging, even if they know the truth that God is still in control and that he's the one that builds their church. So we pray for emotional and spiritual strength for them as well. So would you join me now? You can agree in your hearts and minds as I pray over these things for our friends and the church, uh, Restoration Buffalo. And we just pray for God to work in these ways. So Lord, we do thank you for the fact that we are not in isolation as a church on mission to share Jesus with the world, but man, we have such a strong fellowship of believers with the big C global church, a part of which is Restoration Buffalo, whom you love and you know. And I pray, Father, that they now today would know that you know them, you know their plight, you know their struggles. You know that while they cling to what is true, they feel something that probably feels very contrary to that. And so we pray that you would encourage their hearts in the midst of what feels like a setback and that you would manifest your provision and your presence in whatever a rebuild looks like for them. 
in ways that would glorify you more than if they'd not had to go through that um, trial. Very practically, Lord, we pray for your provision, for the insurance to come through, to provide for um, above and beyond even the things they could anticipate having coverage for. Um, And if it doesn't come from insurance, we pray that you would provide in other unexpected ways for them that would again glorify you. And we pray for your provision of a contractor, somebody who to come in and do the rebuild. And we pray that in the meantime, the church would not just survive, but flourish outside of having a building to gather in, which feels counterintuitive. But again, Lord, those are the times in which you can work so profoundly to show that there's so much more than a building that holds us together as your people. So would you do these things in a greater measure than we can even ask or think to pray for and just bless our brothers and sisters at Restoration Buffalo this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. On the subject of prayer, I wanted to let you guys know that an initiative that was talked about and is about to be launched um, today at 6 p.m. is that we're going to start on a quarterly basis having network prayer, which means that over Zoom, um, we will gather for a half an hour uh, once a quarter uh, with the two other Terra Nova locations, and uh, we'll just spend time praying together. I've been a part of these types of Zoom meetings before, even for the Acts 29 churches in the Northeast. They really do hold to a half an hour. So if you're worried about, oh gosh, these are the things where people talk for 45 minutes on the front end and then we pray for five, we'll be vigilant to make sure that we're lifting up um, each other and the right things in prayer. Um, and today, actually, the focus, uh, no no. Um, influence of my own, but the decision was made to pray specifically for Terra Nova and Saratoga tonight as the three churches gather over Zoom. So you can get access to that link through either the email that you got earlier this week if you're a part of our email list, or you can find it on our website um, as well. So we would love for you to join us. It's open to anyone who would call Terra Nova home. Please join us for that uh, so that we can spend some time praying together for uh, the Terra Nova churches and our own church tonight. Okay, but that said, put on your seatbelts, as Matt said. Might as well. Hebrews. We're going to talk about the background first. It's going to be two mini-sermons, really, today. We'll talk about the background to give you kind of a bird's-eye view, and then we'll dive into chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which is the author's introduction that really sets the tone for the rest of the book. Um, Before we do that, I want to share with you something by way of an illustration to kind of help us understand the purpose of Hebrews and its value to us today. In 2021, a couple of years ago, uh, Barna put together a survey. If you don't know who that is, that's fine. Barna is a guy who probably oversees an organization who does some of the best work in gathering statistics about the church and its culture and its impact upon culture today. And so he put together this survey to try to find out the percentage of those who self-identify as Christians in America who actually hold to a biblical worldview. And what they found is of those who profess to be Christians, self-identify as Christians in America today, only 9% of those actually have a biblical worldview. And we could spend time unpacking, well, what do you even mean by biblical worldview? How subjective is that? The idea generally is that with 2,000 years of history of the church, when you look at the consensus view of key doctrines, those, many of those doctrines were the ones that they used in this survey to assess who is professing to be a Christian and yet holds to or is shaped by a biblical worldview, okay? So in that survey of those who profess to be Christians with worldviews shaped by the Bible, 
here's some of what those people believed. 72% argued that people are basically good. 71% considered feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted source of moral guidance. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. 64% say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way to heaven. 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not real and is not living, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 57% believe in karma, the idea that actions from some previous existence are the reasons or account for why your life is the way it is today. 52% claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual, that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone at all times. Those are the things that are affirmed by profess- those who are professing to be Christians and to have a, 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 a worldview that's shaped by the Bible. Now, some of you may hear some of those and be like, well, yeah, I believe that, and, um, or, or rather, I don't believe that, so I wouldn't. And others of you may be like, well, I think I do believe that. The point isn't to say that these people who believe these things can't be Christians. The point is to show the discrepancy between those who claim to be followers of Christ and, the, and where their, their views on the world are actually more shaped by the world than they are what the Bible teaches. There are also a number of historically held beliefs by the church over the last 2,000 years that were rejected by those in this survey who profess to have a biblically shaped worldview. For example, 46, only 46% believed that the marriage of one man to one woman is God's plan for humanity across all cultures. Get, hear this one. Only 40% of those self-identifying as Christians believe that when they die, they're going to heaven. That's a problem. 60% of those who self-identify as a Christian don't believe that they're going to go to heaven. Only 34% believe that people, are born into, that people are born into sin and can only be saved of those consequences of sin by Jesus Christ as Savior. Only 32% believe that premarital sex is morally unacceptable. Only 28% believe that the best indicator of a successful life is consistent obedience to God. Again, point isn't to say if you wrestle with any of those that Uh, that makes you a bad Christian or not a Christian. The point is to say that there's an issue here. If 9% of those who profess to be Christians in America today actually hold to the views that have been consistently agreed upon by the church for 2,000 years, it means that everything else is having more influence upon us than the Bible itself. So why do I share that? Because only with theological clarity as Christians understanding what the Bible actually teaches, will we be able to endure in faithfulness in following after Jesus, especially when we encounter opposition or persecution in this world? And that is the main concern for the author of Hebrews as he writes to this group of struggling Christians. And so I want to talk a little bit about who the recipients of the book of Hebrews are, the purpose, the style, the strategy, and then the author really quickly to give you some background context. Some of this you'll be able to relate to it. Some of it you won't. It's 2,000 years and cultures and places and times that separate us, but some of this will feel pretty universal. Best we can understand, this letter was written to Christians in Rome, made up of probably predominantly Jews, but also Gentiles, non-Jews, who had uh, come to accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Um, In the city of Rome in Italy, 
around 60 to 65 AD. Some of why we can deduce this from Hebrews, even though it's not 100% clear in the conclusion of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the author talks about how those from Italy send their greetings. Well, it's presumed that since this is a letter that was sent to a group of people, that those who are with him sending these greetings are outside of where their home is. So if there are people with the author from Italy, then it's presumed he's probably sending this letter to those who are in Italy, and the bastion of the church at that time was Rome. Also, the earliest documented use that we see um, of the letter to the Hebrews is by Clement of Rome, who was a pastor near the end of the first century, only 20 or 30 years removed um, from this letter uh, being written. And so we conclude it was probably a group of Christians in Rome around 60 to 65 AD. Now, some of you who know your history, Christian history, or even just general world history, know that at that time, there was a particularly nuts Roman Empire who was in, uh, uh, emperor who was in power, Nero. Um, he was in power from about 54 to 69 AD, and um, things were heating up in Rome in general in terms of weirdness and craziness and also with opposition increasingly towards Christians. But not yet martyrdom. One of the reasons why we can know this is because of uh, what is said in Hebrews chapter 12 when the author says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It doesn't seem anyway as if the mar- period of martyrdom in Rome that the Christians faced had yet uh, been taken place, but it was probably very close. Um, in a historically based but fictitious commentary that a scholar wrote uh, kind of describing the average experience of a Christian at this time, some of the circumstances that he described were that it, was hard to re- it would have been hard to retain employment as a Christian because of your reputation, which would have made it difficult to make men's uh, ends meet. And so some of these Christians were living in squalor. You would have experienced family shunnings because of converting from Judaism to this new version of Judaism. And then there would have been a social stigma that would have followed you everywhere you went. It, were, it was not easy conditions to be living in as a Christian. The author knew this, and it informed his purpose in writing this letter. And his purpose was this. His purpose was to encourage Christians, struggling Christians in their faith because of the cost they were starting to experience of following Jesus. I think it's helpful, too, just to understand that there wasn't this clear delineation between uh, Jew and Christian at that time like there is today. Um, Really, it was all Judaism at that point. It was either, from a Christian perspective, the outdated version or the true version, the one that was truer than the outdated version because Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that old school Judaism was pointing to. And some had found it really difficult to stay committed to Jesus because of all those pressures socially and otherwise, and so they'd already um, reverted to the previous brand of Judaism and left the church. And then there were others who were in the thick of that struggle. And those were the ones that the author to the Hebrews is addressing and seeking to encourage in their faith. The style and strategy of this letter actually helps serve that purpose. Um, This was probably, most scholars agree, a sermon. This is the format in which this letter is actually written. I'm calling it a letter. It was probably a sermon uh, that was then read by somebody representing the author of it. Part of the reason we know that, there's no traditional greetings or introductions like we see in almost every other letter in the New Testament. It just goes straight to talking about God. It's an introduction to a sermon. Um, We also uh, 
uh, sorry, I lost my place. Um, we also know this because uh, it, um, it's not, it wasn't uncommon actually for, especially those who were more pastorally oriented to, uh, um, when they couldn't be in a physical location, they would write their message as a sermon and just hope that the person who was going to read it could read it with the passion and boldness they wanted conveyed. So uh, the letter of the Hebrews, more so than others in the New Testament, actually reads more like a sermon. Um, it's both in terms of structure and style, it's both deeply theological, but also deeply pastoral. It's both. Um, Hebrews tends to be known, if you're more familiar with the Bible and the New Testament, as one of the more difficult books in the New Testament. Um, lots of Old Testament references and deep theology that's being explored, but don't be fooled. This is not a book that's theology for theology's sake. It is not a general theological treatise that was meant to be universally read and applicable to all Christians at all times and places back then. Now, it may be that for us today, but that was not the intended purpose. The motivation of the author when you explore and do a deep dive into Hebrews is this. He believed that endurance in the Christian life was directly proportional to the clarity with which you see Jesus and understand what he has done for you. And his strategy in accomplishing that end of helping this group of Christians see Jesus and what he's done for them is by building this grandiose theological argument about, as Matt said earlier, Jesus is better, Jesus is better through every possible angle of what the Jews held precious at that time. Um, but then he keeps coming back to the same pastoral exhortation over and over again. Jesus is better, but be warned. If you don't remain faithful, it will not end well for you. It's heavy. There are some really, really heavy parts of the letter to the Hebrews. Um, this juxtaposition of this glorious presentation of Jesus as being better with this reality in which if we do not endure and persevere in faithfulness, it will not end well for us as Christians or as those who profess to be Christian. And I think what we will see at the end is the presentation of Jesus and his glory, and how he is better, and uh, how no one who truly knows Jesus could ever actually uh, be abandoned by him or abandon him, like that will overshadow the warnings, and yet the warnings are there, and they're real, and they need to be heard. They needed to be heard by the audience of the author who is wanting to ward off others abandoning the faith and all the consequences that would follow from that. So who is this author in brief? We don't know. Most of the letters in the Bible, in the New Testament, we know the author proclaims who they are right at the beginning. We don't know who, who this author is. We know that uh, they are brilliant. They, we know that they are a dynamic preacher that comes, not that I know Greek all that well, but from those who do know the Greek, it comes across, especially in the Greek, that uh, they're very skilled in the art of rhetoric and building beautiful um, logical arguments. And in fact, many scholars um, inside and outside of the church would say that the letter to the Hebrews is one of the most beautifully crafted literary works of the Greco-Roman time period. Um, this person knew the Old Testament really well. Uh, there are 70 uh, either explicit, about 35 explicit, and 34 more um, allusions to the Old Testament more than any other place in the, in, in the New Testament um, there are references to the Old Testament in Hebrews. So he knew his uh, Old Testament well. Uh, he was highly educated. 
there are hallmarks um, of somebody who was trained in Alexandria, which was the primary education center of the world at the time. And yet with all of that, this person's brilliance and high education and knowledge of the Old Testament, clearly they had a pastoral heart as well. And that, is, that comes through in this letter too. Some of the most popularly proposed authors are the Apostle Paul, or at least to a certain period in time, Paul was. The consensus today is not likely. One of the reasons for that is because there's 169 words used in Hebrews, used nowhere else in the New Testament, which would be really odd considering the rest of the New Testament or a large portion of it was written by the Apostle Paul, that he uses 169 different words here than any other, well, any other place in his letters. Also, the author refers to himself at one point as receiving the gospel from original witnesses. So those who were apostles who had personally interacted with Jesus, whereas Paul tells us on a couple of occasions that he received his gospel directly from Jesus. Probably not Paul. Um, Apollos, uh, who uh, is probably the most popular proposed author today um, of Hebrews, um, or someone like Apollos, perhaps. Uh, we read about Apollos in Acts chapter 18. So if you ever want to, it's probably worthwhile reading Acts chapter 18 later today or sometime soon, um, given Apollos was the most likely author and just kind of learning a little bit more about him and what made him tick. We know from Acts 18 that he was Jewish, that he was a native of Alexandria. He's described there as being a learned and eloquent man, man um, that he's competent in the scriptures. So he knew, to, knew his Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament and we see him as a bold preacher in the synagogue. So he's a preacher, and again, the letter of the Hebrews reads more like a sermon, and very bold. And that comes through in um, the letter to the Hebrews as well. W w there's eight to ten different proposed possible authors. Just so you know, like one of them is Priscilla, um, who's been proposed historically. Priscilla, as in of Priscilla and Aquila, also in Acts chapter 18, she, along with her husband, came alongside of Apollos and kind of helped instruct him in the ways that he was a little bit off because he was still growing early on in his bold ministry. That's the way young leaders typically are. They're a little bit like wild stallions that need to be broken. And so he was, uh, had a heart of gold, um, but it was a diamond in the rough, and she and her husband came alongside of him um, and helped him. The reason why we know it's probably not Priscilla or a woman in general is because the author in chapter 11, verse 32, actually refers to himself with masculine pronouns there. And so it probably was at the very least a man, maybe Apollos, but as the church father Origen said, only God knows. So we don't really know who this author was. So that's a little bit of a background to Hebrews, this letter we're about ready to jump into. So let's get into chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll read that together. It'll be on the screen behind me. And as we do at Tara, if you would, if you're able, let's rise and stand for the reading of God's word together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. 
So these verses that we're looking at today are basically an introduction to this letter or to this sermon, and they basically highlight for us many of the key themes and ideas that we are going to encounter and build on as we continue to press into this letter together. And there's a basic structure that we see in these four verses that will help us to see what the author is saying from a bird's eye view. And in that structure, there's really an exploration to some degree of the mystery of the Trinity. Um, Now, Trinity, tri, part, you know, is three. We really see an emphasis upon the Father and the Son in particular here. But Trinity in general, for those of you who might not know, is a theological idea that Christians have that we believe is founded in what Scripture teaches about the nature of God, that He is one God who is nonetheless three persons, three persons and one God. Or put a different way, there's a unity of essence in God, but there is a distinction of persons or roles within the Trinity. It's hard for us to understand, although I'll say that I think it's reflected in some ways, even in things that God has done in creation, Um, even though it's not a tripart thing. Just think of the way that God describes marriage as two, uh, a man and a woman coming together and the two becoming one. I mean, that's mysterious. Like physically, we know that like we are not at all times one with our spouses, and yet we're described that way. It's meant to describe something that is infinitely beyond us, that is a part of the nature of who God is. And so the author is actually, I think, secondarily exploring this idea of the Trinity, especially the two parts of Father and Son, the third part being the Holy Spirit, here in these first four verses. And so he starts and ends with the Father. And then in the middle, sandwiched of these four verses, is a lot about the Son, about Jesus. His first coming and his purpose for that, and then uh, his ascension and his return to heaven. All right, And, and here's what you could say. Uh, in, a, in a structure, in terms of structure, you could say it this simply, uh, the structure of verses one through four. God speaks, and the culmination of that is in the Son, him speaking through the Son. The Son sits, or the Son sat down, and the imp- implication here is by invitation from the Father, which it doesn't say explicitly, but we'll talk about why Um, a little bit later on. God speaks climactically through his son. The son sits, or the son sat down by invitation of the father. That's just at least a a big structure that might help you to then fit the pieces we're going to talk about in between. Now, verses one through four are one long sentence in the Greek. Aren't you grateful for our translators, and those who've decided to put in some punctuation to make it a little bit easier for us to track with what would feel like a run-on sentence if we were to have it without any of our English punctuation. Um, At the same time, that can make it more difficult for us to really understand what the author is trying to say. It wasn't just that they were bad writers. They're probably better writers, and so they could handle long run-on sentences. Um, So here's one of the ways in which we miss maybe a little bit of understanding the author's main point by virtue of having changed it to fit what works for us in English. There is one main verb in this whole section. There are two verbs. There's one later on we'll come to as well in verse four or three, but there's one main verb, and it comes in verse one. I'm going to read it to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, and the next, the next one is not actually a verb. It's a participle. Having spoken he says, to our fathers by the prophets, in these last days, here's your main verb, and so here's the emphasis of the author, he has spoken. 
to us by his son. He has spoken. The author's main point here is to say that God speaks. God speaks. And he has done so climactically through his son. Now, we'll continue to dig into the exposition, what the author meant by virtue of this structure, but just stop and pause for a moment as a pilgrim, as a Christian, or as somebody who's not a Christian here today, who's just, yeah, if you'd pause long enough just to consider, even if you don't believe it, what it would mean that there is a God and he speaks. First of all, first of all, God didn't have to create anything to begin with, not to mention speak. God is perfectly happy within himself. Again, he has a communal nature to him, the Trinity. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Paul is preaching at Mars Hill, a message about the gospel. Um, and, and here's what he says. He said, he, God, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God didn't have to create anything to begin with. Secondly, God didn't have to not only create, he didn't have to speak. He could have just created the world to see what would happen. He could have created it and decided to use it as a source of entertainment, to watch. He could have created it and said, you know what, forget this, I'm going to start over and go somewhere else. Kind of this deistic notion of people recognizing, well, there has to be a creator behind this world, but I don't see where he's at work today, so he must have kind of created it, wound up this world, and then kind of wandered off. But he doesn't do that. Not only has he created this world, but he's a communicative God. He chose to speak to us. And he didn't just choose to speak to us morality. Here's what you should do, and here's what you should not do. Get it right. He chose to speak to us relationally. He chose to speak to us for the purpose of being known and knowing us. So stop and pause and marvel every once in a while at something as simple as a phrase, he has spoken. God speaks. But in terms of the exposition, what we want to try to glean from uh, the grammar and the structure that the author is saying here, the structure actually uh, of these, this first sentence and a half, verse 1 to 2a, the first half of verse 2, serves to contrast the way that God has spoken in times past with the way that he has spoken today, climactically, through his Son. There are going to be structures like this throughout Hebrews that we will, either I won't see or that we won't have a chance to explore. I'm just going to show you one of these here. It's just so logical, so well-crafted. In verses 1 to 2a, here's what he does. The author talks about the era of revelation, the recipients of revelation, the agents of revelation, the ones who are giving it, and then the different ways in which the revelation came about. And he talks about it in times past, and he talks about it in the last days, right? So here's how that works out. In the Old Testament, the era was times past. The recipients were the forefathers. Uh, the agents were prophets, which, by the way, didn't include just people like Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, but anybody who received divine revelation. So Abraham, Moses, and David would be included in that list. And then many times in many, many ways, it says. So there's a diversity of ways in which God chose to spoke in times past. Some of those, by the way, it's worth it's worth thinking about, well, what were some of those ways that God chose to spoke? Some of these he even chooses to speak still today in these ways. Well, in the Old Testament, we see he chose to speak through miracles. He chose to speak through direct speech. Think of him speaking directly to Moses at Mount Sinai, through visions, through dreams, through drama. 
Think of how many of those prophets uh, had to enact these dramatic presentations, uh, rolling around in the mud and like building a miniature version of a city and knocking it over to indicate what was going to happen if they didn't repent. So through drama, God speaks. Through animals, Balaam's donkey. Through angelic messengers, the list could go on many times in ways. And then he contrasts the ways that God spoke in past times with the ways that he spoke, the era, he says, is the last days. Okay, the last days is the period in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the period that we're in now. And to whom? Who were the recipients? To us, to both the Christians that the letter to the Hebrews is written to, as well as to us today. By whom? Who was the agent? The Son. And then what were the ways? Well, it was just one, the supreme way, Jesus, God's Son. And this is the whole point of the emphasis of the author of Hebrews, is he's saying that preeminently all of the ways that God has spoken in the past culminates in the revelation given to us today through his Son. That's what he's trying to say to these Jews who are struggling with being these oddball Christians in, uh, in the Roman church and amongst all these fellow Jews who didn't believe and were tempted to go back to, I'm just going to rely upon the things God said in the past. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you're going to miss a lot because the preeminent way that God has spoken to us is through his son. And so his conclusion is this. Jesus is the better word. He's the better word. That's the big idea for today, the big takeaway. To give you kind of an illustration, maybe that would help uh, you be able to see how the ways God spoke in the past um, work uh, in cooperation with the way he spoke supremely through his son. Because I don't want you to hear we throw the Old Testament out. I don't want you to hear we throw every other way of possibly hearing from God out that we see examples of in Scripture. I want you to see that the Old Testament was good. It's good that it's in our Bible. Our Bible would be incomplete without it. It's foundational, but it culminates in the Son, and He is better. And so here's the illustration. Um, Imagine that there's this family situation in which you have these children who are estranged from their father. Maybe they just had enough for whatever reason at home, or young and rebellious, and they left. And over the years, he tries to keep in communication with them. He sends them letters. He sends them messengers, friends, mutual friends he has that are in town. He's like, would you let them know this about his love for them, his plans for them, his hopes for reconciliation with them? One day, the father just says, I'm, you know what? I'm just going to risk going and trying to find them. I'm going to show up at their doorstep. And he does, and he knocks, and he's there face to face, and he says those same things. He communicates his love for them, his desire to, for them to be reconciled to him. And it's better because it isn't just the message, but now it's the person. And with that person, they're able to see the love that's on his face, the body language, the inflections in his voice that capture his heart in ways that only by seeing that person and hearing his words in person can be conveyed and understood. That's Jesus. Jesus is the the preeminent, supreme way God could have communicated with us, God in the flesh. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. That's his point. He's saying you have all these other ways, Hebrews, Jews in Rome, church. You have all these other ways God's spoken in the past. But of all of those, the best is Jesus. Don't abandon him. God speaks through miracles, yes, but he speaks more clearly through Jesus. God spoke through the Old Testament prophets, yes, but not as clearly as through Jesus. God speaks through visions, yes, 
but not as clearly as through Jesus. He speaks through dreams, yes, but not as clearly as through Jesus. He speaks through angelic beings, yes, but not as clearly as he does through Jesus. He can speak through circumstances. He can speak through other people. He can even speak through your thoughts, your feelings, your impressions. Yes, but none of those are as reliable as God speaking through his son, the revealed word that we have in our Bibles. That's what he's trying to say. Jesus is the better word. Don't miss it. Well, if Jesus is the better word, and if in order to persevere in the Christian walk, it's all about seeing him with clarity and understanding what he has done for us, then who is he? Well, we have a lot from just these first four verses that the author introduces us to that I want to briefly unpack with you as we move towards a close. In verses 2b, so the second half of verse 2 through 4, we learn at least eight things about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And Unfortunately, hear this as a cliff notes of what we could say on all of these things to whet your appetite, to dive in more deeply in your conversations with friends, with your family and tribe. Uh, but I want to at least touch upon each of these eight things. The first thing in verse two that we learn is that he is the heir of all things. In verse five, the first verse that we'll get to next week, the author quotes from Psalm two. He's going to quote a lot from the Psalms in Hebrews. Psalm 2, verse 7 in particular. So what we know is that this psalm was in his mind as he wrote this phrase about Jesus being the heir of all things. And in the next verse, after the one he quotes in verse 5, Psalm 2, 8, he says, or it says this, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Who's speaking there? God is speaking. This is a messianic psalm. God is speaking to whom? His son. And he's saying, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations and the ends of the earth. Well, what the author of Hebrews does here is he has that in mind. He understands that that is language of, um, uh, of, of uh, an inheritance being given to an heir, right? A son being given the inheritance from the father. But he takes it another step. He says, all things. He is the heir of all things. If there was anything you felt was left out, he makes sure to cover it. He's the heir of the whole universe. In other words, Jesus is the proper owner of every created thing in the universe. He's the proper owner of you and me. He's the proper owner of our families and our children. We talk about that a lot of times when we have an infant dedication. God ultimately is the owner of these children we've been entrusted with. He's the proper owner of your homes. He's the proper owner of the smallest little things, your, the clothes on your back, the shoelaces in your shoes. He's the proper owner of the air you breathe. He's the proper owner of that $20 bill you got in your wall. He's the proper owner of the ant on the sidewalk you just stepped on. He's the proper owner of it all. And this is beyond the scope of our passage today, but where this gets really crazy to think about, crazy in the sense of like, it'll make your heart either explode or your mind explode or your heart just explode with worship. And that is that we are, we are called co-heirs with Christ in a future sense. That's the inheritance we will receive, those of you who are Christians here today, upon being united with Jesus in heaven forever. Romans eight seventeen. if we are children with God, we are co-heirs with Christ, which means that future speaking, what belongs to Jesus will belong to you and I as well. Wow. Worship. 
Allow yourself to worship when you hear that. Number two, still in verse two, he is the one through whom the world was created. In other words, there's nothing created, kind of going along with the air piece, the ownership piece, nothing created that Jesus did not make. This means he was there, even if not explicitly, um, in Genesis 1 with God, creating all that there is, which has been a hard thing at times for me to understand. Who's the creator? Is it God? Is it the Son? Who's ultimately responsible? So a quick illustration for you that maybe help. Uh, what my oldest, Everett, my son, just turned nine in December. When he gets older, let's just say we go into a contracting business together, which is never going to happen. Any of you who know me, I'm not that handy. But in, an, in another iteration of life, when we get older, we go into a contracting industry together and we decide, all right, we're going to construct uh, some condos here in downtown Saratoga Springs because that's what we need, more condos here in downtown Saratoga Springs. Now, I'm responsible to kind of draw up the plans and make the initial connections with the person wanting the build um, and signing the contract, and I'm overseeing it. But my son is, I don't know what the term would be, the executive contractor in my company. He's the one who subcontracts to others. He's the one who oversees the project hands-on, even throws a hammer at a nail every once in a while. So when the, when the project's complete and, you know, the condo's done and people, there, somebody asks, well, who, who built that? Somebody's going to say, well, that Daniel Williams built that. And somebody else is going to ask, well, hey, who built that building over there? And somebody who is a little bit closer to the situation on the site, you know, more frequently is going to be like, oh, Everett Williams built that. So who's right? They're both right. See, the construction would have happened under my authority and direction, but it was built by the, we'll use the fancy term, the agency of my son, implemented it, was hands-on. He's actually the one who did the process of the building. And so it is with the father and the son as both being responsible in the work of creation. He is the one through whom the world was created. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. We're in, in verse three now. In Exodus 33, we have this beautiful passage of God passing before Moses with his glory. And here's what he says. This is God speaking. To Moses. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until, you've, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God's glory, or at least a part of it, was on display to Moses in that scene. It was a privilege to be able to witness God's glory. Glory, if you boil it down based upon what we see in the Bible, could be defined as the radiant, radiant light, right? Radiant manifestation of God's presence. To see the glory of God is to witness God's presence in the most intimate of ways. So here's the implication if Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. If you want to experience the presence of God, Go to the better word. Go to his son, because he is the radiance of the glory of God. In some ways, you and I have it better than Moses by virtue of Jesus having come and us being able to witness the glory of God in the son. Number four, he's the exact imprint of God, still in verse three. The Greek word for imprint here is image. 
In the ancient world, this referred to uh, the representation of something, like a stamp or um, uh, an impression on a coin, like Caesar's face imprinted on a, a coin. This idea of an imprint or an image referred to the features by which you could recognize someone. Jesus, we're told, is the imprint of God. No, we're told he's the exact imprint of God. Which makes sense of Jesus' words in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 9. If you've seen me, you have seen who? The Father. So Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Number five, he, holds, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think it's appropriate, too. I've heard it translated his powerful word, if that's easier for you to comprehend. He upholds the universe by his powerful word, which is not so much a, a picture, meant to be a picture of physical strength, like the world on Atlas's back, but of governance. God upholding Jesus, upholding uh, the universe by his governance, his sovereign rule over all things. The idea is he is working out his plans amongst the nations and his people. And again, who, who's governing? Is it God or is it Jesus? And I think it's similar to God creating everything through Jesus. The Son is the agent through whom the Father sovereignly rules the universe. So I think there's a parallel there between God creating through Jesus, God rules through Jesus. How does he do so? By his powerful word. One thing, honestly, I've always just not been able to wrap my head around is this idea that in the beginning God speaks and it's a word that has creative power in a physical sense. Like, I just don't get that. I don't speak and physically something appears. And this is a bit tangential from the immediate point the author is making, but I do think it's right to stop and ponder the power of words, the creative power of words. Words have a power to create. Words have a power to destroy. They have a power to influence others, to encourage others, to produce hope. Words have constructive power, even if in a different way than is presented here of the sun. And I think it begs the question of us as pilgrims when it comes to stewardship of words. Right now, are your words serving more to create life and hope or to destroy and tear down? Words are powerful. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Number six, he made purification for sins. Two things that I want to say here. Number one, just note, uh, the author is introducing a key theme that we're going to come up against again and again in Hebrews, and that is Jesus as the better high priest and the better sacrificial lamb. Okay, he's introducing the theme of Jesus' suffering and death on behalf of the sins of mankind. But secondly, I want you to see the exaltation that we're about to look at in a moment. Exaltation just means raising up in glory, right? Of sitting once again at the right hand of the Father. He didn't just jump to that. He didn't just become a man, live, and then go back to sit at the right hand of God. What we see is this connection here between exaltation and humiliation, between glory and suffering. And this is actually one of the key themes in the New Testament, not just of Jesus, but of what the church and his people should expect as a pattern in our lives of following him, that suffering precedes glory. And that is a key theme we'll see unpacked in Hebrews. Number seven, and I'm actually skipping over 
Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high for a moment, because that's kind of the climax, even grammatically, in this passage. Number seven, Jesus became, or the Son became, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You read that, some people would read that, understandably, and say, well, uh, th- that's strange. Like, how could Jesus become something else? Was he, he was lower, but then he, like, evolved to a higher state, um, better than the angels all of a sudden? I mean, doesn't Scripture tell us, after all, that uh, God is supreme, that Jesus is God? Doesn't Scripture tell us God doesn't change? Yes. So the key is understanding what is meant by this. Other things that we have learned above about the nature of the Son, that He's the radiance of the glory of God, that He is the exact imprint of God's nature, that He is a creator, all those have to do with His nature. This has to do with His position, His rank his status. His nature doesn't ever change. But as we read in Philippians 2 and elsewhere, Jesus chose to humble himself. This is the incarnation. Infinite God becomes finite man. He chose to humble himself to take a lower rank in order to incarnate and suffer as a man for our sins. This clearly comes through in Hebrews 2.9, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, um, where this idea is expanded upon. The author says, but we see him, the son, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he, may, he might taste death for everyone. So the discussion here isn't about nature changing, Jesus' nature changing. It's about his position or his rank, which took place by his own volition. He chose to become lower than the angels for a time in order to suffer and die for us. All right, and then finally, Circling back to the end of verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the other verb, by the way, the other clear verb in the Greek in these four verses, sat down. So clearly, the author is bookending what's most important to him. God spoke, the culmination of which was through his son. Jesus sat down by invitation from the Father. Now, why do I think that this is by invitation from the Father? Well, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, the author quotes from Psalm 110, which, by the way, he quotes from quite a bit in Hebrews, but also is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament, by the way. And he quotes this from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's an invitation from the Father to the Son, but it's a unique one, right? You don't just walk up to a king and plop down on the seat next to him. You don't do that. Right? The high priest in the Old Testament who went into the Holy of Holies where God's glory was, and he went in once a year to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. He didn't just climb up onto the uh, Ark of the Covenant and sit down where God's glory seat was. He would have died. This was unique to Jesus, this invitation. And it tells us something about who Jesus is. It tells us he's royalty. It tells us he's on par with God because he is God. Okay, so that's the first thing is, He sits down at the the right hand of the majesty on high, but it's a unique invitation from the Father to the Son because of who the Son is. Secondly, um, to us it may seem like sitting down would imply relaxing, like taking a load off, like stopping working, like when we get home from work after a long day and we just want to plop on the couch and do nothing for a while. So don't get that impression because that is not what's being communicated through Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. There's three things at least that are being communicated. Number one is completion of the work of atonement that he has done on behalf of the people he came to save. He's done. 
it's done. It may not feel like it's done. In Matt's prayer earlier, when he was talking about how you may be in a place where you're suffering or confusion right now, it doesn't feel like all that we should have as a result of Jesus' work being done has been experienced, but it is. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So him sitting down is showing the most necessary work for the redemption of this world is finished. Secondly, he sits in order to rule. It's when a king is sitting on his own throne that he is governing and ruling. When you have to worry is when he's wandering about the rooftops of his palace looking at things he shouldn't be, right? Like King David. No, he's, it's symbolic of the fact he's sitting in a place where he is ruling. And Jesus today is actively ruling and reigning over the universe. It's a part of what it means that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And thirdly, and this one isn't here clearly in this passage, but in Hebrews 9.24, he is interceding on your behalf. In a way we'll get into later in the series, Jesus has done the work of atonement, but he continues to be an infinite and ongoing intercessor between you and the Father so that you never have to worry about falling under the wrath of God. Hebrews 9.24 says this, for Christ has entered not into holy places with hands, like the holy of holies I talked about a moment ago, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's his ministry of intercession that is ongoing forever into eternity. Jesus doesn't go back into heaven to take a passive role in our lives. He goes back into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father in part to work on our behalf as our priestly, our high priestly intercessor. And so, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's the final thing that in this passage we learn about this son. We'll explore many of these and unpack them further as we continue in this series. It's just an introduction, 